determinedly turns round, walks away, stares down at the ball. Blake dancing and diving on his goal line. Zimmerman hits it and he misses. And Philadelphia Union go through to the Eastern Conference final. National season is over in heartbreaking fashion. Welcome to the season-ending episode of Club and Country, the podcast of record for Nashville SE coverage from the two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I am Nashville SE radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the owner-operator of ClubCountryUSA.com. Moon Taxi brought you the music and ESPN 94.9 brought you the painful final kick of the season for the boys in gold. A PK miss from Walker Zimmerman, a match that will go down in infamy because of the way it ended, but a season, Tim, that will be memorable for a long time because of the way it built up to that painful ending. Yeah, when you got to that point in the in the after the 120 minutes, in fact, you, once they got through those first couple penalties and it was not going well for Nashville, you got strong. Cincinnati in the USL playoffs in 2018 or Charleston Battery in the US Open Cup in 2019 vibes. It just felt like it wasn't going to go well. And uh, un- unfortunately, that, that feeling was was born true. Yeah, Nashville 0-3 in penalty kicks now under Gary Smith. 0-1 in the top tier. After the 1-1 draw, they don't convert a single one of their four spot kicks. And that does in their season the conference semifinals against Philadelphia Union. We won't spend a lot of time summarizing that on a broad level because you guys know what happened. But on today's show, in our early shot, we will break down the loss in a little more detail and we'll discuss what NSC accomplished this year so we don't miss the forest for the trees. It was a disappointing loss that ended an incredible season, historic season in some respects, and we'll get into that. We'll also start to preview the off season because it's going to be a quick one. These guys are going to be kicking off again in late February. There are a lot of key dates before the holidays, and uh, this is when Tim really thrives. By the way, as <laughs> yes, good as his this, match this analysis <laughs> is, this is this is the you know we can all analyze a match, and Tim does it better than most. But it takes a roadmap to navigate the complex MLS off season and the uh, serpentine and sometimes asinine rules uh, within it, and so. Uh, We will preview some of that for you in the early shout uh, and maybe answer a few questions then in the mailbag about some of those roster decisions that Nashville SC has to make. And by the time you're listening to this, you might already know what some of those decisions are as the deadlines hit fast for Nashville SC. It just depends on when they then announce those uh, transactions. Uh, So many feelings and questions from so many of you. We put out the call for mailbag questions and I walked away from Twitter for 15 minutes to actually do some work today. And came back, and the inbox was overflowing. So we had to had to miss a few of yours, but we've got an off-season to talk about those we didn't get to today. We'll go outside in and, and briefly discuss results elsewhere in the playoffs, as well as a couple of key news items, one tangentially related to one Gary Smith. And then our final whistle, we will sum up the 2021 season and then uh, give you a, a look at what to expect next from us on this show. All right, let's dive into the early show. Back it goes to Miller again. Good patient build-up from Nashville. Miller now goes for the cross, and Mukhtar is there to head it into the net. And Hanny Mukhtar scores for Nashville. A wonderful delivery from Eric Miller. And then Hanny Mukhtar beautifully guides it past Andre Blake. It goes into the corner of the net. Nashville go into a first-half lead. Montero stands over it. It's right-footed. In it goes. It gets to a Philly head. And then Gazdagger drops on the edge of the six-yard box. Two efforts. And he's put it in. Gazdagger scored. And in stoppage time at the end of the first half, the Union have leveled. The pair of goals, courtesy of ESPN 94.9, Honey Mukhtar in the 38th minute. Got Nashville in front. It looked like the boys in gold were going to head to the halftime dressing room up 1-0. They did not. Daniel Gazdag equalized in the second minute of first half stoppage time on, Tim, a set piece. Set piece. 15 of them conceded this year. And you got the feeling, even though Philly was on the front foot then in the second half, that if Nashville could have gone to the break up 1-0, perhaps it would have relied on that steely defense and been able to see out that result. Yeah, it's a situation where scoring first against any team in Major League Soccer is is pretty important. But against a team like Philly that wants to force you uh, to to kind of go long on them, Nashville would have gladly done that had they been able to hold on to the lead. They would have said, as long as you don't get it into our dangerous areas, we're happy to play that way. Obviously, the God's Dog goal really changed the opportunity to do that and made Nashville unable to play or, or maybe let them continue to play a very defensive style of game and take it into penalties. Nashville 
in matches that were tied at the break. Only won once all season. They only huh. lost once all season as well, and they drew 13 times. And remember, this match counts as a draw in the books because it went 120 minutes without a winner. 1-1-13, one, one, and 13, and those are really not the kind of numbers that are going to elevate you to the position that you were, where you want to be at the end of the year. Philadelphia outshot Nashville 24-13, but, Tim, they only managed two shots on target, and only one of them in regulation, as none of their 15 shots in the second half found the target. Now, you can quibble a little bit. Sergio Santos missed a sitter that uh, could have put Philly ahead. Nonetheless... Philly on the front foot, but as we've seen so often from Nashville SC on the road, steely defense, they're able to see out what would have been a result in any other circumstance um, and really minimize the threats from the Union. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what we've seen from this team a lot of the year. Even if they aren't able to score, which they were not after that Mukhtar um, spectacular goal, even if they aren't able to score, uh, the other team isn't going to score either. Um, Unfortunately, in the playoffs, somebody still has to win. <laughs> and so once you get through the 120 minutes and the game is, is tied, you, you are kind of leaving yourself up to a coin flip or uh, in the instance of what we saw uh, Sunday night, maybe a little bit worse than a coin flip for Nashville yeah, SC. I'd say so. Uh, by the way, uh, we, we don't want to gloss over the fact that Eric Miller notched his first goal contribution since 2018 with his assist of Honey Mukhtar. Secondary assist goes to Alistair Johnston. Uh, happy moment for Eric. And then he was um, somewhat responsible for the Philadelphia goal on the set piece. So involved in, in both of those goals there. Uh, story of the night, though, Tim, not either of those goals. It'll be the penalties that didn't find the target for Nashville SC. The kick-taking order was Mukhtar, who was saved. Godoy saved. Alex Wheel hit it way off the mark. Zimmerman missed the target as well. So two shots saved by the, we have to say it, the stellar Andre Blake. Mm-hmm. But neither of those PKs were were worldies. They, they Both those guys would probably want to have those kicks back. And then two shots off frame, which just hurts. It just hurts for this team. As, as strong as, as Zimmerman has been, Wheel one for one on PKs this year, uh, misses his chance. And uh, it, just, it just went completely wrong for the boys in gold. Yeah, again, it was that kind of negative feeling that that feeling of foreboding that comes when you when you get that first one from your guy who's an MVP candidate when yeah. he misses it, the, probably the confidence in the team is just shot at that point. And as we get into our gold nuggets, we'll tell you that Nashville SC is only the third team in league playoff history to fail to convert a penalty kick when another record. Another another one, that's right. Uh, the first two of those, by the way, happened against SKC's Tim Melia, who is a superb penalty kick stopper uh, and had uh, actually one of those last year. So, Tim, uh, as, as we discuss what went wrong for Nashville SC from the spot, I want you to rank these factors for me. Was it lack of composure? Was it poor choices to take the kicks? And, I mean, I don't think you can say that when you've got the two guys who've made PKs for you this year stepping to the spot. Or just great goalkeeping. Yeah, I think when you look at even great goalkeepers need a little bit of luck. So I think the fourth factor might even be the biggest one, and it is it is luck. Andre Blake made two great saves, but um, you know there was a bit of bad luck. Godoy's penalty in particular was not even close to that bottom corner. He saved uh, Blake saved it like with his chest, even though he had, had dove past it. So there is an element of luck there. And as I mentioned before, once Mukhtar's penalty was saved, you felt the wind go out of the sails. And from there, the Nashville SC players weren't composed. I think a lack of composure did play a big role going into that. And then in terms of uh, you know the selections of penalty takers I can't get too worked up about that because no. hardly anyone on Nashville's team has a robust history of it in competition I believe Walker Zimmerman has taken as many as anybody else on the team and has been historically pretty good the issue is there just isn't a, a resume that we can look at from the outside and say here's how good these guys are Gary Smith has had these guys taking penalty kicks pretty much every training session um you know for the better part of two years for for all four of these guys and sometimes you just have bad luck and I mean, it truly is one of those things, right, where it, unless you've been there and been in that situation, and not even just during a match, but in a playoff circumstance, you really mm-hmm. can't replicate the pressure, especially on the road in that moment. It is truly a mental exercise, more so than a physical. You know me. I, I like to veer away from feelings ball versus the analytical <laughs> look at it, but but there really is kind of a, a mental a mental side of this and an emotional side of it that, that it's a test that Nashville simply didn't pass. Another gold nugget for you, Philly's 24 shots, the most taken by a Nashville opponent this season. That passes NYCFC's 23 at Nissan Stadium. The Pigeons, of course, were chasing the game in that 3-1 Nashville win. The chances skewed the Union's way, but then when you look at the significance of those chances, very few of them were major threats. 
Yeah, 10 of those chances came from outside the box and, and six of them came from Sergio Santos. And uh, um, uh, so that's, you know, 16 of them that are, are not dangerous at all. I'm only being <laughs> only being slightly harsh on Santos. He's actually a, a pretty much an average finisher, but <laughs> a couple of his misses uh, against Joe Willis were, were pretty rough. And then the, the shot that's, that Willis actually saved, Santos's only shot on goal, was not a particularly difficult save for Joe. But nonetheless... Even though Nashville sometimes had trouble getting out of its own end, especially before they found that Mukhtar goal in the first half, it never felt like they were allowing Philly to turn those um, giveaways into dangerous offensive chances. It was kind of the opposite of the Orlando City game in the Mm -hmm. first round of the playoffs where Orlando seemed to be in really dangerous spots a ton, and Nashville was preventing them from getting shots off. Well, Philly was doing the opposite. They were taking a bunch of shots, but none of them felt particularly dangerous at the time. And Gary Smith didn't make a substitution to this match until the 90th minute. That's when Yonder Cadiz came in for CJ Sapong. It is the longest he's gone all year without making a move. Of course, you're usually looking at 90-minute matches. And you just wonder, Tim, if this is Gary acknowledging at some point midway through the second half when he'd mm-hmm. normally be making those moves that he knew this was probably going to be a 120-minute match. Yeah, once you get to that 68th minute and you don't see Gary kind of getting in touch with with his trainers down on the end line, you know that he's probably got an impression that it's going longer than regulation time. Um, I know people kind of get upset about this. I think fans of basically every team think their coach makes subs too late, so I can't get too worked up about it. Even if even if the fans are correct, and I think there have been studies that have shown um, American soccer analysis is one that I believe has shown that coaches tend to make subs too late. I don't know how they quantify it, but regardless, um, every fan base believes that that it's unique to their coach and, and uniquely frustrating for their team that their coach is like that. So the fact that basically every fan base feels that way, it's hard for me to get too worked up about it. But then when you look at at how a guy like Jander played in the extra frame, um, when you look at some of the later subs, Jaleel, Jaleel Anibaba for Eric Miller, for example, you saw guys coming in who kind of stabilized the game and in Cadiz's case um, looked dangerous, didn't necessarily create a ton of danger. But it seems like if Smith had planned for a 120 minute game, as it as he probably had by the time he made those subs, that he made the right moves at the right times. Yeah, there's one move that I was clamoring for about midway through that half, and that was to get Eric Miller out. Remember, he was playing that right wing back spot with Mm -hmm. Alistair Johnson at right center back. Move Alistair up to right wing back and put in Jaleel. I think that would have given Nashville more, obviously more attacking punch, more on the counterattack, while not jeopardizing their defensive backbone since Alistair's a tremendous Mm -hmm. defender on the the flank and Jaleel certainly is solid and is a like for like for Miller uh, moving back to that right center back spot. That I would have liked to have seen. I think you might have seen it if Miller hadn't gotten an assist from the wingback spot in the first half, though. And that's it, you know, and, and yeah. we know that everything in the playoffs is amplified. Mm-hmm. And so Gary Smith's the importance of trust to him is is amplified as well. And yeah. uh, certainly he has great trust in the guys that he put out there. He wasn't going to pull anybody who was acquitting themselves nicely and. Everyone in Nashville's 11 had a pretty decent match, at least uh, had a couple of nice moments, if not played solidly. So I, I could understand it, certainly. I, I mm-hmm. have no problem with it on paper. You know, if your guys are playing well, if they have energy, you're playing as if it's your last match. You're not thinking about rotating for New England, New York City next week. You, you've got to play as if it's the last match. Wear the guys out if you need to. And then when you do that, of course, when you do put in those fresh legs in extra time, they're going to be that much fresher, hopefully, uh, for you than Phillies were. It just didn't work out. But but like you said, I mean, Nashville we've had six shots in those 30 mm-hmm. minutes of extra time. So they were more threatening. They were more active than Philly at times in extra time. And I didn't think it was a bad tactic. It was just interesting, though, and certainly worthy of yeah. noting here. So as we start to recap what this season meant, we wanted to to first give you the numbers, right? Because we're both data guys, especially Tim. And so before we talk about our reflections on this year, let's look at what the numbers say about Nashville SC in 2021 and its second year in Major League Soccer. Uh, we told you last show that Nashville was the first ever MLS expansion team to win a playoff match in each of its first two seasons. So you can reasonably call this club historic, but how they went about their business in the season was also historic. They tied the league record for most draws, 18, and fewest losses, four. They had the fewest losses in Major League Soccer this year as well. And they set the draws record uh, if you include the Philadelphia playoff match, which again counts officially as a draw. The only other team to have 18 draws in a year was the 2014 Chicago Fire. They only won six games, though. They missed the playoffs. So Nashville is the draw king of Major League Soccer history, if you include the playoff draw. 
Yeah, and it's worth noting, and we've kind of hammered this point regularly over the course of the regular season, is that draws are worth points. That's a, It's a good thing to draw games because um, the alternatives include winning, which is better, and losing, which is worse. Um, early in the year, I know there was a lot of consternation about how teams who draw a bunch don't typically make the playoffs or whatever it was, but that kind of ignores the fact that teams that draw a bunch historically have been more like the Chicago Fire team, which had 18 losses, than like this Nashville team that had four losses. So um, obviously there's still a next phase here for Nashville that's mm-hmm. to continue avoiding the losses like they did this year but turning more of those draws and, and I would say especially the draws on the road into wins because the draws on the road were, were sometimes a stylistic choice by Gary Smith they were and I think you can look at say a scoreless draw at Soldier Field at a ruddy uh, you know, pockmarked Soldier Field and say <laughs> that's a regrettable draw I think though that any conversation of Nashville's draws record that doesn't include the fact that they played 10 of their final 13 on the road is a conversation that is lacking in context. Uh, You're going to Philadelphia, NYC, DC, which was in a playoff position at the time. Um, You're going to Orlando. Those are good draws. So yeah, they added up. Mm. But I think the draws you regret, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, are the ones at home uh, against teams that you were leading or superior to, or in some cases both. Those are the ones you truly regret. I don't think anybody should look... At any of the matches I just referenced on the road besides Chicago as anything but mm-hmm. fantastic results, as we yeah. said at the time. My, my only point there is is the draws at home were, were bad luck, bad play. The draws mm-hmm. away were a stylistic choice, and you can choose a different stylistic choice and, and kind of make your own destiny there. Whether you're you're winning half as many and, and losing half as many, you, you still average 1.5 points per game, which is better than one point per game. But... Uh, at at home, it was it was not about playing for the draw as no. it sometimes was on the road. No, it was often set pieces, and it was mm-hmm. yeah, it was the bounce mm-hmm. of the ball here and there. And that's one thing I will say too. I think you know this this staff was very focused on a top four spot. They got yeah. it. Yeah, they were less focused on a top two until they got in the position to maybe try to secure that, and they went for it against Red Bulls on the final day. There's no question, but I think there were moments when they were happy to secure a top four, didn't want to risk falling below that line. When they could have pressed, they could have moved yeah. forward, and, and we know they were a goal away from securing second spot and hosting mm-hmm. Philadelphia in that match. Nashville, the fourth best road defense in league history when it comes to XG against, but on the other hand, their road expected goals four ranked fourth worst in the league this year. They were shut out eight times away from home, as Nashville, Tim, really just never really could take its home attacking identity on the road with consistency, and, and as you mentioned, a lot of that was a choice, whether through personnel or through tactical approach. But that in itself shows that there's room for improvement for this team to improve the personnel, to, to get more aggressive in those moments and, and try to be a little bit more incisive away from their home pitch. Yeah, I think there's a chicken and egg issue at play here. Do you want to risk conceding more expected goals in the name of, of achieving more expected goals for your own team? Um, I think because of that stylistic choice, um, they were playing it. I certainly could say conservatively. I think some might use the pejorative uh, form of Gary <laughs> Ball to, to describe that. But ideally, you'd like to see the team's growth from year one to year two, which included a much more open offense, particularly at home in Nissan Stadium. Next year, will obviously be in the uh, to, yet to be named home Nashville SC Stadium. But you'd like to see that trajectory that you saw from year one to year two continue and take its show on the road like Nashville SC was able to take a show on the road and, and earn draws this year. Uh, you'd like to see them turn some more of those into wins. So to sum it all up from a numbers standpoint, first with the attack, Nashville was third in the East and fifth in Major League Soccer in scoring. And after we talked over and over again about Nashville underachieving on the score sheet early in the year, they caught up to their expected goals and actually passed them. Nobody overachieved more in the attack then Nashville SC, 8.1 more goals than XG tells us they should have scored. A huge improvement, Tim, this year. From year one to year two, there's no doubt the attack was more incisive. Uh, but if you looked at goals and said they were just scoring on par with XG, they'd only rank 14th in scoring. So they're much more middle of the road in, in the terms of the chances that they created. Was the improved attack quite as improved as we thought? Yeah, I think to a certain extent, some of it is is a team that is in its second year under the same manager with the same teammates. Um, and then you add a guy like CJ Sapong, who's going to be somebody who can who can turn the gimme uh, opportunities into goals. I think this is a team that's kind of built like the Caleb Porter crew team of, of last year, where if they got a high XG chance, they were going to slightly overachieve it. Maybe those low XG chances, they were going to slightly underachieve. 
But when you generate more of the high XG chances than, than the low XG chances, you you are built to overachieve your expected goals. So I think, yes, to a certain extent, you would expect some regression to the mean a little bit. But at the same time, I would also expect Nashville to continue, like I just mentioned before, continue their trajectory of building upon what they've already built so far in Nashville. Defensively, Nashville allowed the fewest goals in Major League Soccer. They tied for the most clean sheets as opponents underperformed expected goals by nearly three, which is about average, about middle of the road in, in Major League Soccer. There's no question the defensive stability was there, at least from a bird's eye view. But of course, you zero in on those set piece struggles and you think as great as this defense was in open play, historically great in open play, it was still those set pieces that, that haunted them and early concessions as Nashville SC conceded the first goal in the match 16 times this year. Yeah, I definitely focus on the set pieces. Like you mentioned there, um, they were such a bugaboo for this team. And it's what the weird thing is they became an issue once Walker Zimmerman left um, on international duty and then for the birth of his son. And then again, on international yeah. duty. But when he returned to the lineup, it, it continued. It, it, he, they didn't go away when Walker Zimmerman returned to the lineup. We saw, um, you know, on Sunday night, Walker Zimmerman was right there with the chance to maybe block the shot from Daniel Gazdag. Didn't get a chance to 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 make that play, and um, it's not because he's any worse of a player. There's certainly an element of luck there, but if if his form and the form of the guys around him had maintained from the time that he left, it could have been even more special season for Nashville SC. So that's what the numbers tell us. But let's go subjective for a moment. Let's go feelings ball, Tim. Uh, how will you remember this season? Yeah, I think it's going to be a season that that uh, I think the broader MLS uh, media sphere and fan sphere is going to say, OK, that's fine. It's just a, a small market team, you know, doing all right with what it what it had. Uh, I think it's going to be understating it. This Nashville SC team spent a lot less than most teams. And, and one of the guys that they spent a lot on, Ake Loba, was not available for much of the season. Another of the guys that they spent uh, on their under-22 initiative, Rodrigo Pinheiro, um, via form, and, the, and then maybe some off-field stuff, was unable to, to feature basically at all for this team. So I think when you look at what this team was able to accomplish with the players who actually saw the field, it was a building block towards year three. I think that would be, if it was, if I was just had to pick one phrase for how to describe it, I'd say building block towards year three. And obviously maybe, maybe a win against Philadelphia Sunday night. And that wouldn't be the narrative, but I think um, it does look like a step forward, even though this team is, is falling in the same round of the playoffs. Obviously the regular season success was on a completely different level. And so it will build going into year three and they're going to hope to, to make that the year that everything happens for them. There are two ways to make the same statement, and it tells me right away what kind of fan you are, not that one's right or one's wrong, and that is you could either say, imagine what Nashville SC could have accomplished if they got better contributions from their non-Hani DPs, and the other is, look at what Nashville accomplished despite not getting the contributions mm -hmm. from their non-Hani Mukhtar DPs. I tend to fall in the latter camp because I think it is is much more challenging to develop the kind of roster with draft picks, with a free agent acquisition in CJ Sapong, who was cast off from Chicago, and, and with those types of players, and build a winner, than it is to to plug in DPS and and you know get the job done. It was disappointing, certainly not to get the contributions you expected uh, from Ake Loba down the stretch. Although I think we see a very different Ake Loba uh, next year. Yonder Cadiz had moments, of course, had more moments than than a lot of people admitted, uh, but uh, but not as many as I think anyone would have hoped. And then Pinero, we've talked about, uh, was just you know it was it was a a, a year zero for him, yeah, uh, for sure. How will I remember the season? It for me, it's a season of almosts, and it kind of pivots along that axis axis that I just discussed. That that things almost went really really right, and they almost went pretty wrong too. Uh, Nashville was one goal away from hosting Philadelphia instead of traveling to Philadelphia. One goal in a number of matches, and they'd be the two seed. And yeah, you could say that about Philly too, that maybe they score their their goal they didn't get to. You can always say that in a soccer season. But in several matches, Nashville was a razor's edge away from getting to a point where it, it earned the two seed and dramatically changed what that conference semifinal probably looked like if it's if it's in Music City. Of course, they were also one PK session away from advancing, maybe even one handball in the box called. And we both feel like there was a handball there in the 70th minute against Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. If VAR overturns the no call there and it goes to a PK, Nashville goes ahead 2-1, we might be having a very different conversation right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, like I hate to be the, the officiating, you know, 
decided the game guy. So I'm not going to get too heated about it, but at the same time, um, you look at the the home game for Philly during the regular season, and there was a penalty that was pretty similar. Taylor Washington's arm was just mm-hmm. kind of out, and it and it got struck. Saw a very similar sort of situation um, for for Philadelphia. Obviously, slightly different because it was a sliding player, makes it a little bit more. Um, is he supporting his body, or is he unnaturally making his body larger? I think the fact that if he does not connect with it with his hand, it it probably ends up at the foot of Hani Mukhtar. Is has got to be like kind of your your tiebreaker there if you're <laughs> yeah. the VAR official. So it's unfortunate, but every every club has those unfortunate moments over the course of the year. Unfortunately, Nashville got struck by one at a very inopportune time, and uh, you know you move on to the next one. Philadelphia may tell you too that they had their own unfortunate moment. Seven minutes later, a goal mm-hmm. disallowed for a foul in the box. I thought it was yeah, a legitimate that felt like foul, a ma- but that felt like a makeup call to me, honestly. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I, you could you could have called you could call the foul. I, I saw the foul in that for sure, but we've seen it not called. We've certainly mm-hmm. seen it not called. Uh, things almost went really right for Nashville SC. They almost went decently wrong too. Nashville had the most goals conceded in the first thirty minutes of matches of any playoff team, except for Portland. They went down. A lot, and thanks to their resiliency, we're able to come back and only lose three of the 16 games in which they <laughs> conceded first. A testament right there to the strength of this team. And Nashville had the third best scoring record in the last 15 minutes of matches to redeem a number of those uh, potential losses behind only New England and an RSL team that's well still alive <laughs> somehow, doing some crazy things uh, in the last 15 minutes of matches. So if I were summing it up in, in a sentence or two, Nashville was a team that was good enough to be in the conversation this year for MLS Cup. Something that almost never happens in year two. Certainly not at the at the level that Nashville has spent. But they weren't quite good enough to end that conversation with an exclamation point. At the end of the season or in several moments throughout the year where another goal would have seen them through to perhaps a very different end to the year. All in all, I think it is fine. I'm not going to tell anybody how to feel. But but it's <laughs> fine. it's fine to feel crappy this week. It's yeah. fine to be asking what if. I think if you're not asking a few of those questions, you're probably yeah. not looking into this deeply enough. But I think, yeah. I mean, if you don't, if you don't feel crappy, uh, why are you following sports? That's right. part of it. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's it's not only it's not just the glory of victory; it is the agony of defeat as well. I mean, I'm a Braves fan who celebrated a World Series a month ago, and I'm already wondering: Are we going to resign Freddie Freeman? Where's this going to go next? Like the anxiety is already back for next year. It there is no <laughs> respite from from the roller coaster. Uh, but I think ultimately, you know, we, we see a tree or two that may look shoddy and missing a few branches here and there, but you zoom out and you look at the forest and it's looking really good for this Nashville mm-hmm. SC team. And I think most folks who listen to this probably are, are rational enough to recognize that even as they are frustrated with uh, with the near term and with what happened on Sunday. Uh, let's move to the off season now. We are turning the page, and then we'll turn it back in a minute and answer a couple mailbag questions about about <laughs> Philadelphia. But some key dates to note. There's a lot happening, and it happens quickly, Tim. Um, Monday, the night we are recording this, a couple of deadlines for Nashville SC. As when you're a playoff team, the day after you get knocked out, you've got to submit bona fide offers to your pending free agents. Um, and it's also the deadline to exercise or decline uh, club options. Yeah, and those those have to be submitted to the league within 48 hours of, of the final kick. So those have to be tendered today, but submitted to the league office uh, Tuesday, the day that most people will be listening to this podcast. You, you may very well have that information, although Nashville and the league are not required to publicize it immediately. It just needs to be turned in. So we might not hear about it for a few more days. I think last year was it's probably five or six days after mm-hmm. they were due. So um, we'll see. We'll see exactly when we know that. But that's when that's when Tim Sullivan offseason really begins. That's it. That's it. The, the, <laughs> the, the winter of Tim. <laughs> can, we, can we coin that the winter of tim hot, yeah, hot gonna... tim winter i don't know we'll workshop it no mine's better we're gonna go with mine. <laughs> we're not workshopping yours um, <laughs> then we look ahead to the morning of december 12th there's actually a half day trade window uh, it's like a 9 a.m to 1 p.m extravaganza and you know of course the planning and the discussions have already gone into that by then but it's it's the time for teams to make deals announce those deals, and then there's a roster freeze for a couple of days until the expansion draft on December 14th. Yeah, and last year, surprisingly, after such a weird kind of atypical season that was you know stopped and restarted because of the pandemic, there were very few moves made on the half-day trade window. We've already heard of a few rumored moves. Um, Tom Boger to MLS Soccer is, is as lock-solid as they come <laughs> as a reporter. I do not suspect that any of them uh, will, will prove to be untrue, which one of, the, one of the moves that he's reported is that Nashville will pick up 
uh, a boatload of GAM in exchange for an international slot next year. So we'll see. It sounds like there will be at least a little bit more action than we saw last year. On December 14th, the expansion draft takes place. I encourage everyone to watch it and track it. That's great, but there are no stakes for Nashville SC. They are safe since they lost Brady Scott to Austin last year. The rule is that if you had a player taken, you were exempt from the next expansion draft. So Nashville will watch that, and, and pretty good price to pay, Tim, as they lose a guy who was third-string keeper at best for them, and now they're safe from losing anybody this year. Yeah, I, I still like my weird little tinfoil hat theories that they signed Brady Scott specifically because Austin couldn't yet sign him because he was an international <laughs> player and they would have had to make a, make a discovery claim. I feel like there was some, you know, Claudio Reyna and Mike Jacobs got together over FaceTime and said, OK, let's let's figure out a way that you get the goalkeeper you want and we get protection in the following year's uh, expansion draft. So get Mike Jacobs, sit him down, have a couple of drinks, and who knows, maybe <laughs> maybe he confesses to that. Uh, pretty good, pretty good speculation, pretty good theory. Uh, the day after the expansion draft, summer fifteenth, uh, waivers and free agency begin. The MLS Players Association has already published a list of uh, free agents, and you will not be surprised to know that you can find key members of that list, including Nashville SC's players, on. ClubCountryUSA.com. Now, of course, we will know uh, before then who Nashville has offered and kept. And so, you know, we'll have answers before then. The list is going to look a little different uh, then for those other teams as well. But you can get a little preview of some guys who could be available to Nashville SC um, should the teams uh, decline their options and should those guys enter free agency or the waiver process. And it'll be it'll be interesting to see which guys Nashville has options on that they do end up exercising because they're not going to exercise all of them. Um, and there are also guys that will be out of contract that they get first right of refusal to negotiate with last year. That's what we saw last year with Eric Miller. He actually didn't end up uh, agreeing to a new contract until well after the new year. So these situations that, that um, may look locked in stone when the list is published in a couple of days here may not quite be yet. Nashville will, ha- will have to say, okay, we're tendering bona fide offers to these guys. We get first right of refusal to negotiate with them. So we'll see exactly how many of those there are versus Nashville completely declining or, or just exercising their options. And then there's one more step before Christmas, the two-stage re-entry process on Sounds December like 17th to me, and 23rd. Well, you know. <laughs> it's a- yeah, and, and last year, I, b- I believe almost everybody passed all the way down. In previous years, there have been like five or six guys taken. Eric Miller is the theme right now. That's, That's how it. Nashville took him took him in before the first year. But but I think he was one of he was one of like 14 guys taken in reentry two years ago. And last year there were like three taken total. So it's not a process that you're necessarily going to see a lot of action in this year either. And we don't expect you to have memorized the last five minutes of conversation and know exactly how the calendar is going to work out. Go to clubcountryusa.com for each step of the way. Tim will give you updates, context, and, of course, the Nashville SC perspective. And we'll be here uh, to talk you through it as well in the coming weeks and months. We're not going anywhere, by the way. Uh, we'll go ahead and you know and let you know that. We're here uh, to cover the offseason as well, and we're excited to bring you um, every step of a convoluted, complex, but potentially very exciting uh, off-season number three for uh, for Nashville Soccer Club. Let's go to the mailbag now. Chris Hole reaches out and asks, why? Just because life is pain. And I guess I guess I kind of softened this up a second ago, saying that if you don't if you don't feel disappointed when your team loses, why are you falling in the first place? <laughs> but um, you know, jokingly, yes. It, it does not feel great when your team loses, but it happens to literally everybody except for the fans of one team at the end of each year. So that's that's life, man. The only answer I have to the question of why is Z. Oh, Wes. Oh, Wes. It's the only <laughs> thing that truly comes after a why. All right, moving on to Chris's serious question now <laughs> and hopefully a serious answer. I can't, I can't even, man. It was rough. Uh, Chris asks, seeing how this game with Philly could have been played in Nashville, which we've just discussed, uh, which draw this season that could or should have been a win would you choose as the game that most transformed Nashville's postseason fortunes? After all the talk about how good draws can be, and I believe every word of it, he says, we do too, Chris, it still seemed that one more point in the regular season could have seen us through to the Eastern Conference Final. Yeah, when you look at, at a single result that you flip from a draw to a win, it's so obvious to look at those first three games where it felt like Nashville was was kind of in trouble because of how they had played against teams that weren't expected to be all that good. Um, obviously, Montreal recovered a little bit to have a nice season, but Cincinnati and Miami very much did not. So um, I think Nashville had no business going down two goals against Cincy in the opener. And after coming back, probably still should have scored to seal the deal and get, take all three points. The Montreal match played out somewhat similarly. Two fluky goals for the opponent and then Nashville dominating. 
pretty much the entire match aside from those two fluky moments. And then the Miami game felt like a sigh of relief because it was a different type of draw. They held a Miami team that looked like it was a pretty good defensive team with a lot of offensive talent to a scoreless draw. And that felt good at the time. Obviously we saw that Miami's defense was not as good as it looked then. And the offensive players were never going to end up meshing in a way that made this a good team. So in hindsight is much more disappointing than it felt at the time. But mm-hmm. if you're just going to flip one result, I'm more inclined to look at any loss that could have been a draw too. Cause we're, we're, yeah. we're talking literally a single point away yeah. from hosting this, this playoff match. And I think the second game in Toronto was that sort of game where Nashville um, ended up conceding to Omar Gonzalez, I believe in second half stoppage time. I don't recall. Don't quote me on that. People. It was late. It was late. Yeah. And then the first game in Miami that, that Nashville should have won. Jean should have put a goal in the back of the net, didn't get it. And then Nashville was deflated and immediately got counted on and Miami found a winner. That not only was it a loss that could have been a draw, it was a loss that should have been a win. That's a three-point difference. Mm-hmm. And then you're starting to look at maybe the opportunity had Nashville not only posted this game, then you, if you make it to MLS Cup, you have a better chance of, of hosting that game. Um, obviously, it would have taken RSL making it all the way and Nashville making it all the way for the MLS Cup final to be in the Music City. But obviously, the fact that Philly ended up winning on Sunday night meant that that was completely off the table. And you might have heard my dog in the background a minute ago. He can't even stomach some of those results. <laughs> I'm much more willing to forgive the first three games, not because they weren't disappointing results but because the team was still finding its identity finding who it was going to be fc cincinnati west well i know <laughs> i know um and still the most shots uh, of any match all season as they came back ro- raced back and they'll always feel they should have gotten three points out of that now it's it's fair but i think I, i'm a little harder on three others later in the year and to stick with the, the the literal question here i'll just do draws to wins i think your losses are valid though Number three in, in my rankings from three to one of, of the worst draws, I think, for this team was Chicago away. That was one that you referenced him as a choice. Um, mm-hmm. Not not to choose the point. They still wanted to win, but they sat Honey Mukhtar on a terrible field. He'd been banged up a little bit against Miami in the match before and never deeply threatened against a Chicago team that was notorious for conceding goals. I think it's the one road draw you look at and say, that was not a good road draw. The rest of them you can make a case for, for being pretty good results. Uh, number two for me is Orlando at home back in late September, that 2-2 draw where Nashville gave up the own goal in stoppage time. Um, term own goal's rough there. It's unfair to Brian Anunga, but it was a goal nonetheless. Yeah. And I, I think that one hurts because you're just a minute or two away. You were up 2 nothing in that match and, yeah. and couldn't hold them off. That was a bummer. But number one to me is the Atlanta home match on July 8th. This ended up being a pretty decent Atlanta United team, not to their standards, but certainly better than they were in July. But in July, they had an interim manager. They had just gotten rid of Gabriel Heinze. They were in shambles, and they hung around despite Nashville winning the XG battle 2.0 to 0.3 and being up a man for 16 minutes. But Jackson Conway scored to equalize on a, a set piece. Nashville had 30 minutes to get the winner. They could never find it. I think that to me is, is the worst draw from a practical standpoint, a game you should have won, uh, but also because it was against Atlanta, that can be a bit of a tiebreaker with Orlando being uh, being the folks just down south that you always want to beat when you can. Austin Beavers says, after watching this game, I do believe that Philly had the better game as a whole, and as much as I it hurts to say, they earned a win. I literally hate saying that, Austin says, but why in God's green earth did we use Alex Mueil for a PK? Have they played a PK game in practice that Alex wins every time that I haven't seen, or what is going on? Tim, give me some stats. Wes, give me some emotion. Is that what we're known for, by the way? Your stats and I'm the emotion guy? I guess so. I guess so. I'm Mr. Feelings Ball? All right. (laughs) Why, Austin says, did Mwil kick a PK? Well, unfortunately, there there isn't a whole lot that I can give statistically because he'd only previously taken two penalties um, in his MLS career. Um, He hit one in the 5-2 win against DC this season. You may recall that um, that could have been Ake Loba's first opportunity to score for National SC. Mwil said, I earned it. I'm taking it. And fortunately, he put it in. I mean, previously, he had only had one saved by Matt Turner in the U.S. Open Cup back when he played for the Red Bulls in 2019. Obviously, uh, regular listeners know that we're very high on Matt Turner as a goalkeeper. But nonetheless, you know, a 50-50 shot doesn't doesn't tell you a whole lot when your sample size is exactly two. Um, So NSC isn't loaded with experienced PK guys. Um, Godoy had never taken one in competition either. So you go with a guy who's confident, I guess. And Mm -hmm. on the day, Mwil was confident. Obviously, when Gary Smith had had the opportunity to see him take one in a meaningful game, he showed confidence and unfortunately it just wasn't what was to be on the day 
Yeah, two things I'll tell you about Gary. Number one, I don't need to tell you guys that he operates in trust, right? That's his that's his most valuable currency, and the fact that Wheel has done it in a game surely factored into that. But number two is, in, in conversation with him, not after this match, but just in general leading up to some, some knockout matches, I know that he does go through PK situations, as you mentioned, Tim, over and over again in training, and he really firmly evaluates those. He watches mm-hmm. training. To, Gary watches training. Uh, breaking news um, and, and he evaluates it. So there's some of this that, you know, Austin, you can have your questions and they're all fair and they're all good. I, I, I'm not going to give you the emotion that you want though, probably. Cause I, there's some of this, we just don't know because we're, we're not seeing these guys in training and how they're handling those moments. And yeah, you can, you can make the counter argument that it's impossible to replicate that situation in training and that you should go with the guy who, you know, is going to be poised and tough. And well, that kind of defines Alex wheel a little bit too. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's a tough guy. He's got an attitude. He's a, he's a leader for this team in his own way. And I, I actually thought he would certainly be one of the five was not surprised mm-hmm. to see him step to the spot. Yeah. The result though was, uh, not yeah. ideal, shall we say? It, it, it will shock everyone to learn that the penalty kick portion of training is not the portion that we are welcome to observe <laughs> as media members. So, so we can't say how these guys look in training, but uh, just in a vacuum, obviously Alex Mule is not known as a goal scorer, but I, I would, I would peg him as a guy that I would like to take a penalty in a situation like that. And just that it didn't work out in those, again, a small sample size, a sample size of one, it didn't work out does not mean that it was necessarily a wrong choice from uh, the information that Gary Smith had available at the time. I'll ask it a different way. Is there somebody who was in the match at the time who you'd have would have preferred to see step up and take the kick? Um, no, I don't. I don't think there was. Honestly, um, you know, I think fans have mixed opinions on John Ducati's and for for all of his for all of uh, how I think that some of the negative opinions of him are unfair. He's not a guy who's going to go up there and blast a penalty either. He's he's really your only goal scorer after Hani takes one. Um, I guess before Walker takes one, if you consider a different type of goal scoring to be Walker's forte, at least, mm. but maybe a guy like Jalil Anibaba, just for the, the steady nerves of a guy who's been in the league forever. But beyond that, there's not a, a ton of guys that I say, okay, he absolutely must be out there before Alex Mule gets out there. And, and maybe to a certain extent, you plan your substitutions in a way that allows you to have more proven guys out there. If, if Dax McCarty is still out there, maybe you feel pretty good about him taking one. I think, I think in terms of the experience and the emotion, Dax is the guy that I think anybody would trust to take a, a penalty kick in mm-hmm. a shootout. But from the simple matter of who was, who was left out there? No, I, I don't think certainly if you know that you're going to go for uh wheel is going to be one of those four, even if he uh, ended up making it before Walker up to the spot. I agree with you, and you know I think maybe Randall gets that opportunity if he's in, but of course he was mm-hmm. out at that point. Uh, yeah, I I, um, I don't like the result. Who does? But I don't yeah. mind the decision. And uh, yeah, uh, Wyatt asks, what big offseason moves do we need to see? How is next year in the Western Conference going to affect our success? Two good questions as folks are starting to look ahead. Yeah, I think first when you look at what offseason moves are going to see, first uh, we ran through the calendar there. And of course, it may be completely different if there are some surprises in terms of these roster decisions that Mike Jacobs and, and Gary Smith and, and Chance Myers are going to sit down and make together. But if if it's what we expect for the most part, there's still going to be the need to shore up depth at key positions and, and maybe finding some of the next generation behind guys like Dax McCarty and Anibal Godoy, who are not going to play forever, but can still play a healthy share of minutes this year. You want guys who are able to be the guy a year from now. Um, I've consistently said in this space and on the on the website that Eric Miller gets way, way more grief from NSC fans than he deserves. But for $147,000 in salary a year, and it, yes, it feels gross to me that we know exactly how much these guys make, but yeah. for $147,000 a year, you can probably get a player who is equal in quality for depth at that position. You can spend less and get the same quality or spend the same amount and maybe get a little bit more quality and, and maybe it doesn't end up being a depth player. And there are a few other spots, particularly maybe like a true attacking winger where Randall Leal is the only pure attacking winger right now. Obviously, there are guys who can fold into that role, but that's not necessarily their primary thing. I think those are spots that you can get more production without having to spend a ton more than what Nashville has right now. Um, as for the move to the West, um, it's going to mean fewer NSC fans at at most games. And uh, we this did not make the mailbag because it came really late. But shout out to uh, Orlando City fan DC Fatty who asked why Nashville SC fans do not travel to away games. Which uh, you know I'm not I'm not here to 
to speak on behalf of the fans, but I would say in terms of what I saw in Nissan Stadium versus what I saw um, mostly on television, but uh, on a few occasions uh, from the press box on the road, uh, there were there were many, many more Nashville SC fans at every away game than there were ever uh, away fans in Nissan Stadium. So that's something to keep in mind. But um, next year is going to be a lot more difficult. It's going to yeah. be almost exclusively plane flights. So um, in terms of on-field, the quality of the conferences is pretty comparable. I don't expect all three Texas teams to basically be clones of FC Cincinnati next year. So the West might end up being a little bit tougher even before you take into account that you're adding a very good team in Nashville. But I think uh, on, on the balance, you're seeing a, a team that has shown it can go on the road, has shown it can show up and play against anybody. So I don't think the competitive balance of moving to the West is going to be that big of a deal. It is cool to me that NSC fans are going to get a 100 or 200 level course in every MLS team. I think I honestly think years. that is why that is why it was Nashville that made the move to the West because they wanted to they wanted to give the opportunity to say you've played everybody now. Yeah. I think I think that was such a big piece of it, even though it's frustrating for fans. Sorry, continue. No, I think you're right. I think that's a great point. And I think it's going to be exciting to see some of these teams come here. Mm-hmm. The one thing we've really missed in Major League Soccer over the last two years has been the interconference play. And we can understand the reasons for it, given yeah. the travel restrictions and uh, and all of that. I, I, I get it. I totally get it. I'll be excited to see an LAFC come here, whatever they're going to look like. But, but looking at at what the West is going to be next year. And by the way, predicting the, how MLS is going to look, you know, it's an off-season. I, I, I made my, my season predictions on the morning of the season opener, and they were still hilariously wrong. It's a fool's so. errand to try. Yeah. It's why I don't put any money down for a number of reasons. But, but even if I were not affiliated with the club in any way, I would not put a cent down on Major League Soccer. But when you look at what's going what's gonna to shape up to be, at, at least at this point, we know LAFC is going to be in transition, but wealthy. So they may have a style change with Bob Bradley heading out. They may not. They're going to have the money to spend on players. Dallas is going to be in transition still without Luchi Gonzalez, who they fired late in the year. Uh, they're less wealthy, obviously, and maybe playing the kids, which could be fun. Austin will be better, uh, you would think, in year two as they continue to build. Houston's going to be Houston. So unpredictable. Also in transition after firing Tab Ramos. Uh, Galaxy should be better under Greg Vanny. San Jose is going to be tough to play, especially if Matias Almeida sticks around, which doesn't look like it may happen. But that man marking scheme is is very boomer bust. I could see some scoreless draws between San Jose and Nashville SC. Those are the teams that didn't make the playoffs. When you talk about the teams who made it, you know, I think you ultimately you look at it and you think Nashville's going to come into the West expecting to finish in the top four or five. I think only mm-hmm. Seattle and SKC, at least as the rosters stand, are clearly better than Nashville SC. Colorado won the conference. They had a brilliant run. I think you could compare them to Nashville SC in a lot of ways and, and quality. I think, you know, then you look at Portland, Minnesota, some of those teams that you know are always going to kind of be around the mix I think Nashville is going to be competitive in the West and should expect a top four or five finish in that conference. Yeah, I think that's fair. Obviously they finished with fewer points than a lot of those teams uh, that made the playoffs. But again, some of that was because there were three FC Cincinnati's in the West and, and blessedly just the one in the East. So there, there is a, a bit of a difference because the schedules were so lopsided. And again, you know, as we've, as has kind of been a theme of this episode in a lot of ways, this year was building towards an even better Nashville SC in year three. And I think it's fair to say if, even if the rosters didn't change at all, Um, The way this Nashville team came together over the course of the year um, probably indicates that they are on pace to be um, just as good as some of those teams. A question from our good friend John Mueller that I'll refer to you, Tim. Which roster decision do we think will be the hardest? Uh, And just so you know where things stand with with players with with regard to options and free agency, according to... um, website clubcountryusa.com <laughs> Nashville has options on McCarty, Mule, Meredith, Miller and Akam. Two players are completely out of contract, Jaleel Anibaba and Abu Dunlani. Yeah, I think the obvious choice for for the difficulty of decision is Alex Mule. He's a guy who, to an absolute T, fits Mike Jacobs' ideal of NSC DNA with the, the passion he provides, the, the effort he provides on and off the ball. But he struggled late in the season, and he's on a relatively big wage bill. It made $245,000 this year, according to the MLS Players Association. And he doesn't meet any of the homegrown requirements that effectively create roster positions for Nashville anymore. Um, they do have guys in those positions. Um, Nicholas Hines, who, who spent this, uh, the summer out on loan with Austin Bold is one of them. Um, Hundwala Buana is one of them. Both of those guys originally from the Seattle Sounders. But um, 
Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to say, you know, again, you can find guys with NSC DNA that don't cost as much as Alex Mueller, as as, as sad as it is to say. And then the other um, obvious one is, is not a guy who is in this category at all because he was technically on loan this year, and that's Shonder Cotties. Mm-hmm. I know there's an anti Cotties sentiment out there, but I think deciding whether or not to keep him, um, the economic realities of Benfica's situation, and we'll get into this in a, in a question in a second here, might make it very easy to pick him up on a, on a very low uh, transfer number. That could make the decision on whether to buy him from Benfica tougher than it than it originally seems, given the production this year. Um, he's a dude who missed a month with international duty and then quarantining, isolating upon return from that international duty, um, potentially recovering from a respiratory illness that he picked up while on international duty with Venezuela. I think he can bring more than we saw this year. And if the price is right, that could be a decision to bring back that I'm, I'm kind of talking myself into it not being a very typical decision, maybe. <laughs> Well, let's okay. Let's let's talk about that. John Jacobs asks: Is it possible to renegotiate for a lower buyout, non-DP money for Cadiz? John says he's improved a lot with Nashville, and I think his role as striker depth is perfect for him right now, just not at a DP level. So, Tim, I guess continue on your train of thought. Yeah, we've alluded to it in the past, but Benfica is probably motivated to sell him below market value, especially to Nashville, since Nashville has had him on loan for the past year and a half because they're they're regularly this happens all the time in Portugal they're regularly under investigation by the Primera Primera Liga for sweetheart deals with other teams in the league to kind of um, they're one of the big boy wealthy clubs and they kind of take on guys uh, on on uh, I'm using air quotes that everybody can definitely see in this audio medium on loan and Cadiz is actually one of these guys that they they picked up from another club and, and kind of took him off of their books even though Benfica had very little intention of paying or playing him excuse me and then sent him out on loan to Nashville they it would behoove Benfica even if it's just in terms of, of the optics to not have Jean Ducati's on their books anymore. So if they can get that transfer taken care of cheap for that reason, his salary, which is right around a million dollars a year, does not require him to occupy a DP slot. So if Nashville were to get him, for example, on a free from Benfica, which would be the ultimate ideal, mm-hmm. they could easily buy him down with targeted allocation money and he would not occupy one of those spots. But given the opportunity cost of buying him down in, in a TAM role and what you're spending to do that and that MLS monopoly money, I still think Nashville will go another direction. His potential is there for everybody to see. You've just mentioned he, he has been underrated by many, uh, but I still don't think he he's sufficiently earned the trust in his 21-match scoring drought. You know Ake Loba is going to be on the roster next year. Uh, you know CJ Sapong is going to be as well. Uh, Daniel Rios, likely a, a, a shoe-in as well to be around, still under contract and, and on a lo- much lower salary number, of course. Um, I think if you have those three, you wonder, is there a place for a guy who's been inconsistent, even at a reduced price tag, still a, a rather high one there? Uh, if you're a wash in allocation money after trading away some international slots, maybe that's a consideration. I don't think it's a no-brainer to get rid of him, but I could see Nashville instead filling that slot with a steely veteran who comes in and is a good locker room guy and can, can come in in a pinch, kind of what CJ Sapong was signed to be and then took off um, or, or a draft pick, you know, maybe you draft that position. Um, you don't want to rely on the super draft, but Nashville has proven to be very skilled at scouting uh, guys who, who can be good fits for this club from the college draft. I, and, and with that, I'm assuming in that moment that, that Abu Donladi's option is probably not picked up. And we'll send that over now to Grumpy Licious, who who says Cadiz is probably gone. So there's there's Grumpy's opinion. Uh, Jaleel and Abu, will they return? How do we get Loba in the starting lineup? Shout out shout out to Grumpy. She is driving the anti Cadiz train, and <laughs> everybody's everybody's uh, everybody's entitled to their opinion on him. And certainly, he has not done anything to make that an invalid opinion, to say the least. But I wouldn't count on him being gone. But if he is. That's one way that you would see a lot more of Loba. And since we know that Loba is a sunk cost for Nashville right now, maybe it does actually make sense. I'm talking myself back into the other position. Maybe it does make sense for to not bother with Cadiz. Like every player, he needed time to adjust to the squad. He needed time to adjust to the tactics, to his teammates. And he couldn't do that until he was match fit. He was mm-hmm. coming from his offseason with Liga MX, and it was tough for him. I think it took him a little bit longer to adjust than maybe he expected, certainly, um, than the, the fitness staff expected. And then he had to get into the process of getting integrated with the team. You'll see a different Ake Lobo next year, and you'll definitely see a lot more of him, regardless of what happens around him. Yeah, count me as a member of of the not worried about Loba camp. Watchful, mm-hmm. interested to see him progress. Yeah, it's not automatic that he's going to be a 10-15 goal scorer next year. 
but I'm not terribly concerned because of the factors that, that you mentioned. I, I would expect Abu to be gone. I, yeah. I respect Abu Dunladi. I like him. I, I think this staff would have loved to have played him more this year, but between health and guys performing well in front of him, it just wasn't meant to be. He's making 237K for fourth string production right now. And, um, I, I think you can find a cheaper option there, as I mentioned, perhaps through the super draft or perhaps a, you know, a veteran who is at a comparable cost, but maybe um, has a little bit more return on that investment. Um, Abu Dunladi, we will say, had one great moment this year, the equalizer against Montreal to uh, to steal a draw in, in late moments against the artists formerly known as the Impact. In terms of Anibaba, I'd love to see him come back in. He makes $200,000. It's not breaking the bank, but for what he's produced on field you would say obviously it's it's overpaying yeah. a bit but then what he brings off it uh both in the locker room with this team and in the community is is somewhat invaluable i would not yeah. be surprised to see him maybe on a one-year deal with a club option for a for a second come back in and maybe on a reduced salary tim yeah i mentioned alex Muil as a guy who fits the definition of nsc dna and in terms of everything other than on field play you couldn't even approach Jalil Anibaba in terms of what he brings in leadership, in terms of what he brings in the community, in terms of what he brings in terms of accountability for his teammates and, and encouraging them to be better, even when he knows he's not going to play as regularly as he has over the course of his career. In terms of on-field production, you aren't going to get $200,000 in value from him, but you might not need that, that amount of value on-field from him because of what he brings. And I think when you look at when Nashville signed Dax McCarty, it was a similar sort of thing. You're paying, you're paying for the player uh, in terms of what he can provide, in terms of how he kicks the ball. But with Dax McCarty, with Jalil Anibaba, you're getting so much more than that in terms of mm-hmm. what he brings to a team. And I think Jalil Anibaba is a guy that they would love to have back if they can swing it. John Bueller again, what player would you want most to improve this team, and why is it Latif Blessing? I mean, give me Messi if we're just going with anybody we want, of course. <laughs> Messi's but... always your answer. you got to change, your... you gotta change it, it. Yeah, no, but in all seriousness, Blessing is a guy that we've talked about in the past, and, and John and I are very much on the same page about how we how we agree that Blessing is a good fit for this team. He, he fits a number of the criteria that Nashville looks for in players, especially since um, more midfield depth and, and per- particularly midfielders who provide a bit of offensive punch. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a priority in this offseason build. Um, I could also see an elite attacking fullback like Julian Gressel, aside from the fact that there's no way DC lets him go. Mm-hmm. A guy like that to complement Lovitz on the other side being an awesome fit, especially if Nashville wants to stick with his wingback formation where you can free those guys to get forward a little bit more. Nobody has a sweeter right foot to provide assist. Maybe Eric Miller, just for one night only. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> has a sweeter right foot to provide that, that right-footed uh, assist from the cross than Julian Gressel. He, I mean, if you're if you're just making a wish list in MLS with, yeah. without yeah. regard to realistic realistic wish list, no. But <laughs> he was yes, he would fit beautifully. He would fit. He, he was on my list with Messi, man. I don't think we're in the realm of reality here. <laughs> really, really, I, I thank you for telling me that it was unclear. Uh, if you want help in the wing on the wing and a guy who's who's more likely to be available, I, I think you look at a guy like Brooks Lennon, who was in Atlanta, a, a, a good fullback who likes to get forward. He will be a free agent, at least initially. We'll see if Atlanta chooses to re-sign him. But I think Lennon is is the guy who could certainly you know be a factor for you going forward, be stable enough defensively. And, and if you're committed to Alistair in that right center back role and want to spend some cash, as Tim's making the money sign here, it would, it would be costly <laughs> a costly signing. But but he's the guy you know if if you have him at right wing back, if you have Alistair at right center back, and you go with the three man five man. I mean, he, I think he fits what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Again, he's gonna he's gonna cost some cash. Uh, in central midfield, first you call NYCFC and you ask how many Brinks trucks of gam it would take to buy Keaton Parks. Yeah, he uh, was gonna be on my list, but I was like, unrealistic. Messi, realistic. Keaton Parks, unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, your sense of perspective is a little skewed. But we knew that already. Uh, but if you want a guy who's gonna be a free agent here again, Mister New York Red Bull, Sean oh. Davis. Be a free there's no, agent. there's no way he plays for an MLS team other than Red Bulls. You don't think so? I absolutely, I absolutely love the player. He is awesome. You don't think he'd come join his buddy Dax? Man, that, that, you, you said it, Mister Red Bull. Man, there's no yeah. way. I mean, man, now you got me dreaming. Now you got me dreaming. Wes. He would be tremendous. I mean, he, yeah, he brings some of that hard nosed press attacking he's exactly, through defending. Yeah, he's exactly a player that Nashville could use. I just don't see a way that he plays for an MLS team that is not the New York Football Red Bulls. And there is some question too. You're you're spending good money um, on on Dax's salary, on Anibal's salary. You trust them to be around again next year? 
Do you bring in a star central defensive mid to go with them this year, or do you continue to cultivate them and bring in a younger prospect there? I, I think that's probably the move. I think the latter is probably the approach rather than bringing in a, mm-hmm. you know, a guy who's going to be expecting to play every night and then, you know, wouldn't be able I, to. I mean, when we saw um, via injury and international duty that there are starters minutes available for, for Brian and Nunga. The issue is, yeah. Brian Nunga's coming back, so you have to you have to find additional minutes. He's not your number three necessarily. You've got two guys fighting for that number three, number four spot. So just play a four three three with three guys standing parallel to each other, bruising they, central it, defensive mids. He's done it at times with Muil on the right, and yeah. actually they all kind of played a little bit more attacking when they've done that. But they the triple pivot has has been uh, has been gracing Nissan Stadium occasionally for a couple of years here. It's true. You want to secure a result, especially. Uh, you can do it. Uh, Payancito, important question here. Are we getting the podcast during the offseason? Please do not impose any more damage on my already broken heart. Man, I didn't think our puns were that bad that, that <laughs> they, we were going to give him a cardiac event just by returning for an offseason series of this podcast, Wes. I mean, you got to <laughs> oh, have wait, a wait, wait, wait. He wants, us, he wants us back. Wait, is that what he's saying? Oh, okay. Okay. No. Yes. Yes. We will be back. <laughs> we will be back during the off season. Fear not. Fear not everyone. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, <laughs> we're sticking around. We're not going anywhere. And, and, you know, I think the best sports podcasts are the ones that thrive during the off season and explain the, the why and explore the crazy topics. You don't have time to during the, during the season. We're going to do all that for you. So uh, I'm sorry. Condolences. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, last question on a, by the way, a great mailbag. Thank you guys so much. I've got dinner waiting on me and we're just going through it because, because there are so many good questions here. Uh, Trevor Bryant, does Nashville SC need to improve more at home or on the road in 2022? We went undefeated at home, but won less than two points per match. Disclaimer says Trevor, I acknowledge the absurdity of the question, given that we were only the seventh team to ever go undefeated at home, and that 0.88 road goals against per game is the fourth best in MLS history. Look, Trevor, we hear you. You always want to improve. And even though they were great at home, great on the road at times, hey, it's a fair question, so don't dismiss the premise of your question. It's a good one. Now, Tim, answer it. Yeah, it's got it's got to be on the road that you see more improvement just because of of what the points total and what the what the loss column looked like in Nissan Stadium. It's going to be tough for for the new Nashville SC Stadium to feature fewer Nashville SC losses since they did not lose on home turf this year. So, yeah, I mean, they performed better than the average side away from home, but turning some of that play to play quality into more results. And we've talked about that a couple times already over the course of this episode. A draw here becomes a win there. A loss here becomes a draw there. Suddenly you're looking at a team that goes from very good into a supporter shield contender. Now maybe it might be a little bit different story in the West. We don't know what the conference balance is going to look like next year. Um, It's certainly going to make the travel schedule quite a bit more rigorous, but this is a team that if it performed as highly above average on the road in terms of actually winning games as it did kind of on the margins at times, it would be, you know, potentially competing for what we saw New England do this year. All right, let's go outside in. Quick look at the playoff bracket as it stands. New England NYCFC playing tonight, if you're listening on uh, on Tuesday on release day, or will have played. Uh, great win there. Winner plays Philadelphia Union, and uh, if New England wins, they would host. Otherwise, it is Philadelphia hosting the Eastern Conference Final. Portland and Real Salt Lake, the four versus the seven seed, just like we drew it up to. <laughs> Yeah, for Portland, I, I hedged a little bit because I said Columbus did this last year, but this is a team that wasn't particularly good. Even They weren't even fourth in the West good during the regular season. Real Salt Lake is, is a, a great story right now. Probably the team that I would encourage Nashville SC fans to kind of have a little bit of a rooting interest in, pulling for the underdog there. But the way they won at the death against SKC, with SKC just trying to run out the clock, uh, was was brutal. Absolutely brutal for Peter Vermees' team, but um, shout out to Justin Moran, Michigan Wolverine with the game-winning assist. Shout out to him also on, on behalf of our good friend Valer, who, who is a fellow Iraq national. Yeah. So shout out shout out to Justin Moran for multiple reasons. And, um, you know, th- does this team have kind of that Cinderella story like we would see from like the NCAA basketball tournament? Maybe. Yeah. Hey, never know. Uh, Bob Bradley to TFC. That's big news as LAFC uh, mutually parts ways with its manager who immediately turns up in Toronto, something that had been rumored for weeks. 
Uh, interesting note there just to, to cover that briefly for you as we'll see what that means for TFC. But it does mean, of course, that one of Nashville SC's Western Conference opponents will have a new manager, TBD, next year. And then the coach of the year, no surprise, as announced Monday, it is New England's Bruce Arena. The part that is relevant to Nashville SC supporters is that Gary Smith finished fourth in the voting. We knew he wasn't a finalist. He wasn't in those top three. He's beaten out barely by Brian Schmetzer as players voted for Gary Smith over Brian Schmetzer. It was a tie in the front office voting and the media, Gary Schmetzer, over Gary Smith. I can leave that rant for another day. Uh, certainly, we've had that discussion on here that that you know Gary deserves recognition at some point for what he has done for this club. And if he's not going to get it this year, he's got to pretty much win the he's league. He's going to fall into the Jim Trestle uncanny valley soon enough, man. That's it. Once again, the Michigan man going back to a favorable comparison to Ohio State. Yeah, I guess you could do that. The, the venom's out of the snake. To Ohio State's the scoreboard, baby. That's right. The snake has no venom. You've you've vanquished him at least at least for this year until you lose eight straight again coming up probably. Uh, all right, final whistle. Easy content recommendation, and that is your website, Tim. It's the only one I've I've done repeatedly. You've repeatedly recommended custard, I believe. Yeah, um, different types of custard though. So let's not let's not get it twisted. <laughs> we got custard the band. We got custard the egg product, egg dessert product whatever it is i think i came up with another one what's our what's our custard streak now of, of mentioning that product on the show i don't know we're gonna keep it going next week though i'll tell you that I, I, yeah just stay, keep stay tuned all off season don't don't only go to the website go to the podcast and make sure we continue referencing custard <laughs> and it's, my, yeah if, if my you content recommendation to... sorry no sorry my content recommendation i'm gonna be real quick is just watch the rest of the mls playoffs i know yeah. it's very easy to be demotivated to continue watching once your favorite team is out, but watch this. It's, it's good stuff. You can kind of learn what makes a good team and learn what Nashville SC can do to, to follow in those footsteps. And just to, to expound on my point just a little bit there. Yeah. Clubcountryusa.com, Tim's site is, is a great place to go. If you are somewhat new to major league soccer or need a refresher, like almost everybody does at one point or another about the arcane roster rules and, and processes that are in play. Uh, now that Nashville SC season is over, and, and Tim's going to have updates on all of that. So we'll talk about it here, but uh, go deep. Go deep on clubcountryusa.com. And with that, we're going to say goodbye to you uh, for now. But again, we're back next week, unfortunately, for you. Uh, thanks to Moon Taxi for the music, ESPN 94.9 for the highlights. Please do remember, rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, follow us on Twitter, and follow the other shows on the 440 Sports Network. A lot of great stuff out there. Thanks to Braden Gall and 440 Sports for giving us microphones and uh, giving us a platform to talk about a team that we have really relished covering this year, but especially, guys, thanks to you for listening. You have turned this into a community. We've really enjoyed that. We are here to serve you and to build that community as we look toward year three of Nashville Soccer Club in Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm.